This is the London FinTech Podcast, brought to you by your host, Mike Ballerman, bridging the worlds of suits and t-shirts, of finance and technology, bringing you insights, stories, and inspiration from the golden age of opportunity and innovation happening in London right now. Hi, this is Mike Ballerman, and this is London FinTech Podcast. Episode 187, brought to you in association with Smart Pension and the unlistedboard.com. And I'm delighted to be joined today by Christo Borisov, CEO and co-founder of Payhawk, to talk about a topic that amazingly we haven't yet covered, the vital topic of customer service and support in FS slash fintech. In retail FS, or even FS as a whole, customer support is of course essential. However, A, we all have horror stories of dire experience whether it's yieldy, we're experiencing abnormal call volumes at present, which is always ever present on some banks' call lines, while you slowly age more and more being held in a queue. Or B, online, like my recent attempt to check out my ISAs only to keep getting error messages. And then when I called the phone number on the help number, the automated system cut me off. Rather distressing, and I literally started googling news on this company to see whether they'd gone bust being hacked i'd lost all my funds and of course in fintech where as i may have moaned about some time ago due to me having done precisely what i was told to do in their quotes help unquotes chat having raised reservations that this might go badly wrong it turned out i was locked out of my revolut card for weeks with no way back other than fortunately given my profile to embarrass them on twitter payhawk in their day job Combine credit cards, payments, expenses, and cash into one integrated experience. So there's a lot of moving parts there, even if there's no errors on their part and the users just get it wrong, they will need help. Payhawk must be a thing, capital A, capital T, as they recently raised an impressive 20 million bucks in their Series A. Goodness knows what they'll raise in their Series J and K. And they must be very keen on this experience thing, as when I asked Christo to come up with something more exciting than talking about payments or banking or something that we've flogged to death in the last better part of a decade now, he suggested customer service as his first off-piste thought. So, simple question. Is it possible, whether you're in FS or in fintech, to do customer service really well whilst not going bankrupt, having employed thousands of PhDs in customer service at Megabucks? And, Back to an old favourite of FS versus tech. Why do we even need customer service if the tech, quotes, works, unquotes? Plenty to talk about, so let's get on with the show. Good morning, Christo. Thank you for joining me on the show today. Hey, Mike. Thank you for having me on the show. So we were talking about me being British, of course, the weather. You guys are headquartered in London, and you're not currently in, in London, where it's been another dire month in August, probably had more sort of uh, rain than when Noah was around with his arc. And you're in a rather more sensible country for weather. You're actually in Sofia in Bulgaria, where you tell it, were telling me it's a little warm at present, a little warmer than it is in London, where it's about 21 today. Yeah, for the past two weeks, we have had about between 36 and 38 degrees constantly, and that has been a little bit tough. Yes, that's quite warm. So I assume that you guys have air conditioning over there, otherwise you would you would die trying to sleep at 38 degrees from lack of sleep. Yeah, yeah, it gets about 22, 23 degrees during the night, but this is still unbearable without uh, proper air conditioning here. 
Yes, and I listened to uh, one of the podcasts I listened to this year a few times is one by someone called Alex Kosciuta, the subversive podcast, although it's not very subversive. Actually, most of her views would have been considered completely normal on everything in the in the 1970s, shall we say. And she's in Romania on the Hungarian border and lived in lived in London for five years. And someone said to him, one of the podcasts asked her a question, said, uh, what do you miss about London? And, and amazingly, and I, I think Bridget and I were listening in the car and I almost almost crashed into a tree. She said, I miss the weather because the one reason we're going to emigrate one day when we escape the sort of uh, uh, the rat race um, is somewhere with better weather. And she said she misses the weather over here because actually you do get sort of a mild spring. Whereas in the depths of Romania and I suspect in the depths of Bulgaria, you have freezing cold winters and then sort of two days later it's a, a, a boiling hot summer with no transition. Yeah, absolutely. Spring and autumn are something of the past. We go from, you know, minus 20 to quickly jumping into 15, 20 degrees. Um, so you can really, you know, have to adjust fast. So we were getting in June that, we, you know, this year there is no discount for winter clothes uh, because you can still wear them in June. And then it went from <laughs> being like 12, 15 degrees to being, you know, 38. Uh, but yeah, we're now enjoying the, the good part of the summer. Well, it's an interesting question, actually, which major European capital, just for the sake of argument, let's treat Russia as as European. I I know it goes quite a long way east. Has the widest temperature range. I mean, I've visited Moscow a a number of times and they easily do below minus 30 to above plus 30 in the summer, which is a good 60 degrees range, which is phenomenal. I mean, here we struggle to do a 25 degree range. Is Sofia similar, like about 60 degrees range? I wouldn't say 60, but uh, we, we can definitely have about 45, 50. And I hope this kind of difference explains the, the condition of our roads <laughs> here. <laughs> yes, a buddy of mine went to Bulgaria recently and, and said they weren't <laughs> entirely ideal. But successful founders like you will have to stop yourselves buying Ferraris and Aston Martins when you eventually cash out. And actually, it raises a question, a very interesting question. Thinking of maps, there's a map I've never seen, never ever seen. I'll be really fascinated. If any listener knows and sees it online, do, do send me an email. Where the front is on Europe, if you drew a line as to where it's the practice to have air conditioning. So, for example, Czechoslovakia, I know, doesn't have air conditioning. They just leave the window open and it, and it can get hot in the summer there. But I wonder whether the, where the line is, where you would draw a line where on one side they tend not to have it and the other side they tend to have it. Or, is, or do you think it's a kind of country thing, which is like in Romania they don't have it and in Bulgaria they do? I would definitely say it's a country thing. I think it's possible culture. I mean, we have cases where here you're planning the apartment and the, you know, the air conditioning is the most important thing you plan. While in other areas, you know, outside of Bulgaria, I have seen that they're really not that regarded highly. Um, and also there is a lot of people saying, you know, air conditioning can be bad because of allergies and things like that. So it really depends on the, on the country. Yes, and funnily enough, I mean, you, you know London well. One knows that actually it occurs to me that these days every office in London is air conditioned. And even, I think, when I started my career in the city in 85, everything was air-conditioned then. So actually, we've had air-conditioning for quite a long time. The why we've had it, I don't know. Um, probably to stop people leaping out of office windows and they get bad customer service in NFS. Well, I think if you have been in the US, you have seen that regardless of the state, it's actually 10 degrees wherever you walk in <laughs> into a hotel or a restaurant. I always bring an extra jacket there. 
Yeah, well, I mean, the, the worst place is Singapore, being about two degrees off the equator. It's absolutely bloody freezing there. You don't go to dinner, for example, in a Singaporean restaurant without sort of, you know, a fleece, a, a jumper and sort of a ski jacket just in case they're sort of being really um, uh, aggressive. So in terms of your day job, I assume you weren't always pay hawking. So how do you get from being a lad to a CEO? <laughs> you can miss out most of the bits from the, about the age of three or four. You can just sort of fast forward that bit a bit. Yeah, I think it's a good good uh, thing to share because uh, as we're talking about customer uh, and putting uh, you know the customer success front and center in the organization, uh, that really goes back to, to my first uh, company that I started working called Teleric. The slogan of the company was called Deliver More Than Expected. And the number one important thing that we had to do as a company is that we really had to provide extremely good customer success. We were starting developers there. So I started as a developer slash engineer, beginning of my career, spent three years as, as being a developer. And then as the company was growing, we realized that, you know, uh, we need to have somebody thinking about incubating products, thinking about a little bit more of the strategy around the products. And this is where we come up with the with the concept of product managers. And I was one of the first experiments of being a product manager in the company. And then quickly over the years started um, driving our cloud and mobile products into the company. Into 2016, I was already uh, reporting directly to the uh, founders of, of Teleric um, after we got acquired for $265 million by a public US company called Progress Software and uh, managing the strategy and, and the goals of an organization that was 180 people, 12 product managers, 170 engineers. And then after spending... Uh, total of you know 11 years at, at that company really the the pace uh, after we got acquired was very different and i decided that i want to really go back to this uh, um, you know kind of startup culture building things from ground up um, and uh, you know going and conquering uh, certain industries and this is how i decided to quit my my day job 2018 and uh, get into the you know building uh, payhawk and what was it i'm always curious about this what was it that led you to whatever, I didn't know, wake up at four o'clock in the morning and go, I know what I'm going to do tomorrow. I'm going to quit my day job and found Payhawk. What was the inspiration for that? Well, I got my first daughter being born and I said, if I don't live my comfortable life right now, <laughs> I would never go and risk it because I knew that from the day she was born, it's going to get tougher and tougher. And I said that that needs to be the trigger. If I don't do it now, every day that I wait is going to, you know, be much harder for me to start. And that was an interesting conversation with my life. We just had our first baby. And I said, you know what? I'm going to work for free. I've given up financial security. <laughs> I'm yes. a huge risk. And mothers of young children, mothers of young children are very known to say, yeah, that's a great idea. I just fancy some financial insecurity when I'm stuck with a baby. <laughs> yeah, so this was it. And also that was obviously a combination of, of me getting to a point where I realized I cannot achieve you know, the, the dreams I have within the current environment in which I was. Um, we'll come back to Payhawk a little bit later, but briefly, what was it you having decided to leave and do your own thing that led you to dive into this sort of the mixture that I, I mentioned before of, of these various aspects of, of credit cards, payments, expenses, cash in, in, in one place. Did you have some personal experience of pain or did you sort of flick through blogs online to find out what gave people headaches and you thought, oh, that's a headache I'll solve? Our goal was simple. Um, so together with uh, one of our brightest engineers at, uh, at Teleric, uh, we said, let's start a company. And the idea was to create a big company. And to create a big company, you only need to do two things. You need to solve a big problem in a big market. And if you do this 
correctly, you can you can achieve that. And this is where we started looking at the problem and we had a different hypothesis. We had a much more specific problem that we wanted to solve. But as we started talking to financial people and, uh, uh, and owners of businesses, um, you know, across continents, we realized that um, this is just a tiny problem. We need to zoom out. And this is where we ended up building uh, what we call the financial system of tomorrow. So we actually were looking for a problem to solve and coming from a company that was building enterprise software, we knew that building just software is not exciting anymore. The next market categories are going to be based on the crossroads of different things. So for example, just building software is not enough. You need to cross this with, let's say, financial services or healthcare or biotech or something else. And this is where the next set of you know categories are going to emerge. And we, we believe that you know, financial services is one that has plenty of uh, opportunities, especially when it comes to B2B payments and managing companies spent in a much more unified way. And uh, this is the challenge we are currently solving. Yes, you, you remind me of um, Arthur Koisler in the act of creation. He said a lot of creation. Oh, he didn't use the word innovation. But I don't think it really existed in that sense then. He's putting together two things which have never been put together before. And, and as you say, the stage where we've got to now. Well, I just can give you an example. Uh, we just recently got as a customer a company called Melita in Germany. And that's the company that invented the coffee filter. And I'm not sure whether you know the story, but uh, that was invented in 150 years ago by by a lady. Uh, you know, I, I don't know whether you know, but coffee at the beginning was boiled like tea. You were just boiling the coffee beans and then you were trying to remove the coffee beans and drink whatever was left. A coffee percolator. My mum had one. She would put it on the gas <laughs> stove. The coffee would be there and it would literally percolate up, which I guess is kind of like a baby version of proper espresso machines. They do the same thing, <laughs> although they've ground the beans. But, you know. Yeah. And at some point, uh, a lady, um, you know, her, her puppy was going to painting classes and she decided to use some of the tissue to filter the coffee to make it much better so that she doesn't chew the the bees and at some point she realized that that's the coffee filter and this is how Melita was born as a company and uh, they just became a customer a hundred years old company currently on the digital transformation innovation uh, space and getting into that so definitely combining something uh, existing in a unique way is uh, an ability to create a lot of innovation Yes, I mean, a little bit further in, in your direction in, in Turkey, having drank Turkish coffee in the days when normal people were allowed to travel around the world and not just sort of VIPs and politicians in private jets. The Turks still go for this sort of idea of filtering the coffee through your teeth because it can be quite, st- quite strong with <laughs> quite a lot of bits in. That's a good, cool story. So as I mentioned, the service in, in FS as a whole, um, I don't know whether it's just me being unlucky, but it can be bloody rubbish. So whether it's telephone banking being kept for ages, whether it's online stuff and the bloody website doesn't work and you start wondering whether it's been hacked and all your money's gone, or whether it's some new hot and sexy fintech app, what can possibly go wrong? And it does. Do you think my experience is just unlucky, is it, or, or I'm just incompetent or something in terms of choosing things? Or, or do you think that actually the reality behind all the hype is that actually financial services as a whole doesn't do customer service that well compared to other industries? Well, I think just the the problem here is that for a lot of those companies, they imagine the customer you know, support to be a cost center, right? They don't see this as a revenue generating function. While we as a company, we do see this as a revenue generating function. And this is just a different way to approach it. And when we were starting building you know, the company, new banking was already 2018, was already out. We already had most of the new banks that are currently dominating Europe already there. And one of the consistent experience we have been seeing and experiencing also as consumers were that they were 
saying we have the best customer experience, user experience, everything is very slick into the mobile app, but they were forgetting that, you know, customer support and being able to get to a human being is part of your experience if you are not able to solve your problem. And we decided very early on that this needs to be one of the pillars when we, we were building the company. We said, we really need to make sure that when it comes to payments, whatever we do with the software part and the financial services part, the customer success and the customer support part needs to be on par with everything else. Otherwise, especially us coming with you know Bulgarian names in a market which is dealing with money, we had to make sure that we are really excelling on that front. And uh, we decided to go with uh, um, you know to put this as part of our our culture, and we made that front and center as our priorities, uh, so that every employee at Payhook knows that he has two titles. Uh, first of all, his customer success, and then he's something else. And uh, that is kind of the, the mentality we, we embodied here. And I think that a lot of those kind of new banks, they were saying, well, we are a lot more efficient. We are digital. The customer experience is amazing. And for example, we are employing five times less employees in the customer success department uh, than, let's say, a regular bank does with the amount of customers they have. But they were forgetting that still... If you go to the forums or if you go outside, this is kind of the number one problem of all those consumers uh, using that. And especially as we are based on, we are planning our strategy around businesses only, Payhawk is only servicing uh, businesses. We knew that this is even more important because, you know, sometimes it might be okay if nobody replies to you, if you're a consumer, one out of 10 million, and you're trying to do something on the app. But if you're a business uh, and you're paying your employees or you're paying your bills or you're managing a company card of an employee that's overseas, that's being stuck there, paying for an airplane, you really want to make sure this is being resolved within minutes rather than, than days. And um, that's actually still a main reason why we are moving a lot of uh, companies that were, you know, uh, trying to use some of these new banking services, uh, moving to a proper solution like Payhawk. Yes. So there's quite a lot in there to unpack. I mean, just picking the last bit first, I think it's clearly the case that B2B standards of client services tends to be thought about are much higher because you've got professionals on both ends and the market is quite efficient. And perhaps it is the B2C companies that are the problem, because as you say, you know, you might be one I don't know. I don't know how many customers the likes of a Citigroup or HSBC has. Um, sake of sake of argument, let's say 100 million. Let's pick up a random number. If you're one in 100 million, you ain't got much pull with the person that's servicing you. Whereas even successful B2Bs can be very successful with a few hundred clients. I mean, I, I don't think the fixed income at Climates had a, a hundred clients. We had the better part of a hundred clients, and you know that kept a very nice business going for decades and decades, or even even centuries, actually. So there's an asymmetry of power thing. But starting at the beginning, because you made an interesting statement, and the reality is that lots of listeners will be at firms where the mentality is of regarding customer service slash support as a cost. I totally get the fact that uh, you guys chose a few pillars at the beginning and said, okay, you know, what we're going to do is this, this, and this, and the, these are our main ones, and that the way to be good at anything is designing inside out. So for sake of argument, if I dedicated my life to being fit and everything else came second, I would be fitter. <laughs> There's a challenge, of course, and that you can't be good at um, everything. So for people working at firms where customer service is a cost, how would you suggest to them, if you were kind of counselling them or, or mentoring them, how would you suggest they change their attitude? What is it that can change the attitude from, oh, this is just a cost, you know, having to employ all these people over there, 
into that this is something that actually can be profitable for us? Oh, I think they should definitely look at uh, the side of, you know, how can we actually increase the quality of the service by even charging more? Because there are a lot of people that would be willing to pay more. Or if, for example, I would say a lot of financial planning is done by saying, okay, we're going to run this product. It's going to be extremely cheap, free of charge. And then customers are going to be expecting that we have done our math, that we also have customer success uh, properly serving this, right? And a lot of, of those companies that are doing, let's say, a freemium model or giving you something extremely cheap or even free of charge, you know, they come with the mindset of this being actually having no support behind it. You know, you're going to figure it out because at the end of the day, you're not paying me anything. But I would say that a lot of customers would be willing to pay and get that support because they're going to get into that situation. So I think there is an opportunity for those companies to actually charge premium and to be able to, you know, put customer success to a, you know, on par quality because most of the time they're just not calculating this as part of the revenue generation function. And I think if you turn things around and you say, okay, but if I have proper customer success, maybe this is going to increase my, you know, average deal size. Maybe it's going to increase the lifetime value of the customer. I'm going to have fewer customers. That's going to be for sure, you know, the supply and demand curve. But you're going to be able to serve those customers much better. And on our side, that's why we are not focused on vanity metrics like number of users or number of companies. We're focused on, you know, bottom line and top line, making sure that we are generating enough revenue and we're making enough money and at the same time, our satisfaction rates and the health scores are through the roof. Very interesting because hearing you talk there, um, just zooming out, you sound like, quotes a normal businessman making a normal business decision that in other sectors people wouldn't think twice about. So for his sake of argument, let's say that as a side project in your spare time, <laughs> if you have any, which I doubt, you decide to open a restaurant in Sofia. Somebody in the restaurant business knows that either you go for cheap and cheerful or super high end or something in the middle and that the cost of that service, and it is a service, you know, the food may not actually differ that much sometimes. The cost of having a nice restaurant and, and tables on it and, you know, spaced out and air conditioning and all these things costs and therefore you have to incorporate in the price. So from one very simple perspective, going back to the, the, the way of trying to persuade other people to think of this differently, from one perspective, it, it's a kind of obvious it's an obvious business decision. So then the question kind of arises is why do they do it sort of poorly in FS? Well, one of the examples I gave in, in FS of calling your banker on the telephone uh, if there's some problem is because current accounts are free over here so they can't make any profit out of it if they're accounting for it in this narrow way. Another problem that affects quite a few tech, techs and fintechs, of course, which is this whole kind of super tech attitude of lean startup Oh, do something crappy, but as long as it's good enough, you know, just set sail, get in a little boat. But actually, as has been clear by those people who tried that, but also anybody who knows it with FS, you can't do that because FS is super regulated. Firstly, you've got to you've got to get the regulations. You've got to be having relevant licenses. The second thing is that finance is the second most important thing in people's lives, fundamentally, perhaps after health. You know, you don't want to be in a hospital. But then after that, you don't want all your money to have disappeared. I mean, you know, in extreme is your, your girlfriend or your job and stuff. They can they can change and, and life goes on. But if you lose all your money, that, that takes some recovering from. So I think it's this sort of overly tech attitude. And then the third thing, just coming back to the business stuff, which is that going back to the uh, app banks, a number of those started off, and of course, in the UK, where current accounts aren't charged. So they've got to build all this stuff. And then it is an expense because there's no profit. Having said that, I think for the ones that are, are more coming from a sort of tech fintech than a fin fintech 
the company I would point to, who I use all the, the time these days, actually, uh, perhaps sadly I should try and support more businesses, but anyway, is Amazon. And one thing I think that's propelled Amazon to its phenomenal success is that Bridget and I have never, I don't know, in a decade had a problem with anything on Amazon. If something goes wrong, you say, this insert word, X, Y or Z, turned up, it's rubbish, it doesn't work, they sort it out, no problem. So I think one of the great things at Amazon, which is a purely tech company, you don't see any, you don't see any buildings you know, where you can walk into a shop with Amazon on it, is because they appreciate that even if you're a purely digital thing, okay, they've got a logistics chain behind it, okay, we understand that, but what presents to you on, on your app or, or on the interweb is just sort of digitally stuff that even for a tech techie like that, customer service is, is super vital. And you are actually making a great point because, you know, Amazon can be the, you know, it is running half of the, the cloud infrastructure in the world. So we can regard this as the one of the most powerful tech companies out there. And they still have people replying, right? They still don't rely on this being, uh, you are going to sort it out with some guides or a chatbot or something else. At the end of the day, if you have a problem uh, with your window, you can erase a ticket and you can talk to a real person quickly, right? And I think that's that's quite important. They realize that it cannot be just one-sided being saying, well, we are going to solve everything with tech and we're going to automate everything, even though we are, you know, the you know, we are building the most cutting edge product out here. And I think that's the answer. You need to have both the technical capabilities and the human power. And I think another thing that we haven't seen from a lot of companies that, you know, they are actually not putting a lot of empowerment behind those customer success people. So you might be able to reach to somebody, but it might take longer for this person to do the job. And if, if, if as it takes longer to, to serve the customer, it means that there is another one waiting to be served. And that's why, you know, in our case, empowerment was extremely important. So one of the first things we did uh, at the company is we, called, uh, we created a, a channel called War, right? A Slack channel. Uh, and the Slack channel is called War because, you know, once something is posted in it, this should be the most important thing we need to resolve right now. And uh, the War channel is where the customer success folks or everybody in the company interacting with the customer can post a, an issue or a problem uh, that uh, uh, has been reported if he's not able to solve this himself. Right. And then we have rotating what we call firefighters, uh, which are engineers uh, on a rotating basis that are responsible for putting out the fires into the war channel. Right. So they have to be immediately assigned to the problem. And we have usually within two minutes an engineer solving a problem if the customer success person is not being able to do so. And that is uh, extremely important to be able to actually have the backup of those customer success people to be able to rely on proper engineering that is going to be able to solve the problem if they are not being able to do quickly. So that's an example of what you were talking about earlier, which is that if you design a company from the inside out, it is possible to design anything in. We saw a great, uh, a great program on Amazon Prime, a great documentary on Amazon Prime, uh, which I really recommend to anybody who's got Amazon Prime talking about Amazon. This is like an Amazon advert, I should sort of charge them. Called The Last Man on the Moon, which was about the commander of Apollo 17, who has literally been the last man on the moon in whatever it was, 68 or, uh, or 69. Of course, all of us around in 68, 69 thought that by the end of the century we'd be on Pluto, let alone <laughs> Mars, and that, <laughs> that didn't happen. And it's, it's really interesting because it not just goes through the Saturn V the whole project and the whole sort of the, the rocketry stuff, which is a phenomenal project uh, with phenomenal progress made. But also he just talks about his sort of human life, you know, and his divorce and the stress of being a sort of, a, you know, hotshot pilot. And then also the, uh, in a sense, the anticlimax. You know, if you are on the moon, 
what, how's the rest of your life? It's like, you know, I've mentioned before many times, we watch MotoGP and all MotoGP riders say that when you retire, nothing, nothing in your life will ever be the same again because there's nothing like going at 220 miles an hour on two wheels into a right angle turn in the wet. You can never get that kind of um, uh, adrenaline. Anyway, the point being going back to the sort of Saturn V and, and also the MotoGP is if you give the engineers and I mean the engineers of the company, the founders and CEOs, as well as just the devs and, and people like that, the task of designing it from the beginning, we're going to design this to go to the moon, you will get to the moon. It may be quite hard, it may be harder than you imagine, but you will get there with it in, enough um, uh, resources and effort. So this, I like this sort of um, uh, centric idea about starting with it at the centre. And there's a book on my desk, which I must read sometime, called The Fish Rots from the Head Down which is about um, boards and, and when boards go wrong and stuff like that. And basically, I think I can summarise it as saying, you know, fire the chairman or, or once you fire the chairman, then fire the CEO or something. And of course, it's the Chinese phrase, which is applied to various of their sort of empires when they've, they've come and gone over there. I was trying to think when you were talking, but I couldn't actually think of the opposite metaphor, which is the fish is created from the head down or something like that. <laughs> so going back to uh, advice to listeners and that, it can be quite hard if you're in a, in a firm where they aren't customer service centric to create that from the bottom up. You do need to get the management to drive it from the top down Absolutely. because you can say lots of nice words, but for the sake of argument, if people don't get promoted or they don't get pay rises or bonuses or whatever it is happens for a certain behavior, then over time that behavior will not flourish in the company. Absolutely. I think that that's the reason why, you know, you're asking me if I need to advise a company how to do it. That this needs to start from the CEO because otherwise you have different departments. Every different department is only looking at it is IO. And usually for customer support, this is, you know, how you serve more customers better with less, right? But if the strategy is that we're going to use this to actually drive revenue and to make more money as a company, and to actually keep and increase our attention with existing customers, that's a different conversation. And that needs to be cross-functional. And that's why this customer-centering culture really needs to be set from the top. And if you are in a company where you really are frustrated with the customer support, this is because the CEO, I would say, doesn't care. Because he didn't see this as an opportunity, this to be part of the service and this to be part of the, the actual product. Because a whole product is not just the buttons into the mobile app or to the web portal where you log in and click stuff. The whole product is also the customer experience and the support that you get around this product. Yes, and one point we haven't touched on, which is implicit rather than explicit so far, is that if you're prioritizing customer service, then customer service has a status in an organization. So I'm thinking of a fintech, for example, where a few years ago, long before the sort of COVID, they decided to, quote, save money on office space by saying to the customer service people, oh, you can stay at home, you can do your stuff from home, you know, implicitly, you're not important, you know, we're not even going to give you a bloody desk, you just sort of sit there and, and answer people complaining the entire day saying, oh, I can't get back into my Revolut card, you know, da 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 uh, life's a misery. And and it must be very tough doing that kind of job where you only ever get people complaining at you the whole day. I mean, it must be awful being, you know, on, on one of these sort of telephone banking lines where people just call or Virgin Media is appalling. Virgin Media is appalling, 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 appalling customer service. And they just get people being cross with them all the time. So there must be some status thing here, which is that being customer service in Payhawk, you don't say, oh, you stay at home because you people implicitly aren't very important or you guys go and sit in the corner because nobody's sort of, you know, nobody's really interesting. And we'll get the really cool people, the devs in the center. Yeah, I think on our side, the way we think about it is, you know, we are, you know, within our culture deck that we have in the company, there is a statement saying that if you come to work, regardless of your job function and all day 
you wasted by helping a customer and you couldn't do anything out of your list and you went home, you have done an amazing job at work, right? You know, you have done the right thing and whether there are other things that needs to be done, I think customer is, is uh, number one that we need to serve because this is why we are in business. And I think this, the other really important part of, of you know, you touched on an important point where, the, you know, the customer success is really the front and center of all the frustration. There are two ex- important aspects. The first one is to actually empower the organizations to be able to funnel properly this feedback where, you know, the the functional leaders, the executives are reading this feedback. And reading feedback is hard, right? You have to really get to, to a channel where customer success people are uh, feeling comfortable sharing this to the C-level and seeing responses and seeing changes in the organization based on their feedback. Because nobody is going to be frustrated if we do a mistake, everybody is super pissed off for a month or two, and we, then we do the right thing and we solve it, right? This is going to give the satisfaction of those people that we are actually, this is a journey, right? We are not going to get everything right from the day one. And the second kind of a really important aspects when it comes to customer success is that when there is a frustrated customer, or a customer that is is uh, pissed off at something, there are emotions. And there is an opportunity to change the sign of the emotions. So the most raving fans, you can turn from the most vocal and unhappy customers if you make them happy. That's why we are training our people on the team that when there is a customer that is extremely frustrated, maybe he's right or he's not, doesn't matter. I know customers should be, we regard it as that. He has a point if he's frustrated. If you are able to change the sign of his emotions and do an extra effort to show him that we care, then this customer would be a customer for life. And this is the way we, we think about it and we approach it. Um, and I think this is very important. I mean, the goal is not to get this person off the phone or, you know, uh, you know, just, you know, have an ego and say, well, you can go and use the service somewhere else. Use this opportunity to transfer this guy into a raving fan. And I think these are part of the, the learnings you have within the organizations that are extremely important. And, and actually, this is giving a lot of empowerment internally, also to the, our sales teams and our engineering teams that we are, you know, at the end of the day, trying to make customers as happy as possible and as involved as possible in our journey. Because that is the difference between a product company and a service company. Our only revenue is coming from customers that are using our product and referring our products to other people that have had a, an amazing experience with us. And that's why that's why we believe this is a, for us a revenue generating function rather than a cost center. And the other thing importantly that you touched is that you know, a lot of companies, because this is regarded as a cost center and their objective is to serve more, better with less, they start looking at, you know, moving, outsourcing this, maybe cutting their desk or maybe moving this overseas. And this usually is not a good strategy. A good strategy for us is to have the customer success sitting to desk away from an engineer, Right. Regardless of whether these people are on the phone or doing something completely different, you should have the direct connectivity between those people selling and those people building the thing uh, constantly. Yes, and a number of the points you're touching on there remind me of the prior episode with Richard Arundel, who's the co-founder of Currency Cloud, who, since we recorded it, Currency Cloud have sold themselves to Visa for £700 million, about a billion dollars or something like that, which people who listen to the last show could should keep Richard out of baby sham drinking for life. And the point he was making was that 
culture needs to incorporate these things. And one of the cultural things about Currency Cloud right from the start was that they see themselves as, in, as being in partnership with their clients. And B2C and B2B, well, I understand that B2B, you're dealing with a company and B2C, you're dealing with just a person. But that's a sort of bit, a bit simple and a bit crude. I think that the thing is much more how many customers slash clients does a business need? You know, you can imagine that well, a, a single person like me, a single consultant can actually do quite well with one, one client every year. And that scales up to an Amazon that's got sort of, you know, a, a trillion clients or something like that. So actually, if you just look to the number of customers a business has, there's a continuous curve. It doesn't suddenly sort of have a huge gap where there's nobody between, let's say, 1,000 clients and, and 10,000. It's continuous. And along that chain, how much you can partner with your customers will vary. If you're a business that's got 10 customers or 10 clients, you can spend a lot of time with each of them. If you're like Amazon, you've got a trillion, you can't spend that time with them. However, as we discussed before, even Amazon has the attitude that they want to help their customers out. It reminds me of something Jordan Peterson said about if you're having an argument with your partner, <laughs> being human beings, having emotions, you know, your first emotion is, God, they're completely wrong. I mean, I'm completely right. What on earth is going on? What the hell? So, of course, his advice is to sort of uh, have a timeout and um, consider the question about how have I contributed towards this situation? It said, of course, your first answer will be not at all. They're a complete bloody idiot or whatever. He said, but just give it a little while and see if anything comes to you. And they said after about half an hour, you'd be amazed at how many ways come to you that actually, well, I did say this. I mean, of course, that's nothing to do with it, but it might have contributed towards this situation being created. And in the same way, the way you, I like the way you talk about your learning organisation and how you're upgrading everything as a result of this. I mean, going back to MotoGP, for example, one of the things you want to avoid in Moto, MotoGP is the tyre spinning because it, it wears out the rubber faster so you get weaker grip later in the race and you're also losing acceleration. So there are certain metrics in a company, whether it's MotoGP or whether it's landing on the moon or whether it's being payhawk, which are literally the rubber on the road. And if you've got the equivalent of your tyres slipping, you can blame the road all you like, but your tyres are slipping. You know, it's maybe maybe the person who just called and complained couldn't find the login button. OK, well, maybe you could make it bigger. You know, maybe they're a bloody idiot because it's right in the middle of the page. But you can't say, oh, you're a bloody idiot page. But if lots of people are sort of saying that, oh, maybe we make it bigger, maybe we make it red rather than blue or, or something like that. So, yes, it's this sort of idea of partnership with a large P or, or a small P, depending on how many customers you've got and incorporating that in the culture and, and, and seeing the customer service as this are my tyres spinning on the road. You know, this is the ultimate thing. If your tyres don't spin in the MotoGP and your engine's powerful enough, you're going to go quite quickly. If your tyres are spinning, you've got potential which is being wasted. Literally, the engine is doing stuff which doesn't translate into speed. Yeah, I mean, uh, that's why, you know, we are counter countering this with, with increasing the prices. And, you know, as we start to get a lot of customers that we cannot serve, well, what we are doing is making sure that we are focused on those customers that we are, you know, providing most value and also we are adding the opportunity to you know to to increase the prices because in life as you said everybody knows that something can be cheap and, and let's say crappy it can be expensive and it can be crappy but it cannot be <laughs> cheap and to be amazing right that's why we use that opportunity and I, I think a lot of startups are getting to a stage to just get some metrics up there and then they're in the problem of how do we make money Right? Or how do we you know serve more customers? You can quickly go and raise a lot of, let's say, VC capital with vanity metrics in terms of, you know, monthly active users and daily active users and growth on those. But at the end of the day, you know, is that a real business? 
And where are you going with that? Because our ambitions uh, with Payhawk are massive. We currently have customers from 24 countries that are using, those are businesses from 24 countries that are using the product. And our goal is to, to be a global provider of company cards and payments uh, and to really simplify the way you know financial people manage their company spend globally so that they can have a central system where they can control the spend for every employee. They can automatically reconcile all payments and transactions into the company ERP system and they can have a peace of mind, but they can also provide an amazing experience for their employees who don't have to deal with things like expense report or, or gathering receipts or gathering paper or filing this paper, they can actually just have an amazing experience and, and have access to, to company funds, whether they are spending through a company card or whether they make bank payments, all of that can be decentralized. And these are the companies of the future that we would like to support. Yes. Well, as I mentioned before, I think I'd like to sum, sum this up by saying that the one thing you put over very well is the perspective of being a businessman rather than just a co-founder of a fintech, because fintech is a subset of business. And quite <laughs> often people forget that. They, they think it's a superset of tech. Hey, I've got a program that can generate random numbers. Oh, I can sell this somehow. And then you, you try and work out everything else downstream. Anyway, time's going on a bit. So before we wrap up the show, I'd like to thank all the listeners out there, especially those of you in, in customer services, and especially those of you perhaps who are motivated to try and do it a little bit better and change the mentality. I'd like to thank my brand partners of podcast, Smart is transforming pensions and retirement worldwide. The leading edge retirement tech platform propelled them to success in the UK. Now they're operating on four continents and working with partners like Zurich and JP Morgan. Find out more at www.smart.co. Theenlistedboard.com, resources to help you start making your board an engine of growth today. And recently I've added a couple of new free board guides, uh, slideshare PowerPoints on advisory directors and advisory boards and the complex CEO-chairman relationships. If either of those appeal to you, go and download them for free. So, Christo, we've got quite a good feel for Payhawk. Apparently, you like customer service. You've just explained a little bit about what your market is. What, what are your plans for the next few years and, and what would make you an even bigger and better company than you are today if any of the listeners happen to have it or happen to be it? Yeah, I mean, first of all, hiring the right people on the team uh, is uh, quite important to get to, to the next stage. Uh, and definitely our plans are to be a global brand. We really want to challenge the global brands of providing company cards like American Express, you know, Citibank, Airplus. And and we already have the customer base and uh, customers like Luxembourg Airlines using Payhawk to manage all of their spend. And um, yeah, the, the plans are to, to go global and to really change the way uh, companies deal with payments. And in terms of you saying um, you need more resources, which countries are you in at the moment in terms of uh, teams, developers or customer services, you people? So currently we are serving all, company, uh, all countries within the European economic area and also the UK. Great. Well, thank you very much for that, and I wish you every success in the future. Thanks for the call. Thanks for listening. If you are in need of a non-executive or advisory director with deep expertise, experience, and contacts in the worlds of both traditional FS and fintech, or unique insight into how to make your board an engine of growth today, contact me at mike at mikeballiman.com. If you just need one-off advice in these areas via clarity.fm slash mikeballiman. Watching the firelight dance, watching the firelight dance. We could walk in the mountains before dawn. Watching a happy moon ride, watching a happy moon ride. Come away from
Watch the fire light dance with me. 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 Watch the